This is Set Aside Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode. Hello, everyone, and thank you for setting aside some time for us today. This is Jennifer Shemansky. I am the one of the co-chairs of the webinar committee for MSPN, and joining me today is Rasa Fumagali and Bridget Smith. Um, they are my other co-chairs for the webinar committee for MSPN. Welcome, ladies. Thank you. Thank so you. Last year, we I think we closed up the year with a little bit of kind of strange and weird stories that we have encountered along the way. Um, this year, we thought we would go more towards a wrapping up what happened in all things MSPN this year. Um, and really what that relates to is most of the things that kind of happened or were driven by Medicare itself. So um, I think maybe to get started, we'll go all the way back to December of 2021 when the actual paid act went into, um, went into place. And so we've really seen this year kind of the implication of that getting going and, and what was happening with that. Bridget, did you maybe want to give us your thoughts on how that seems to be going or, you know, what you're finding um, in regards to the paid act? Sure. So with the paid act, um, I think we're, we're seeing that, that most um, REs have implemented uh, the necessary software to obtain paid act information. Um, but I do think that, you know, there is some still mis misunderstanding that, that that information doesn't go directly to those payers. And in fact, um, you, it's a requirement in order to get that information from those Part C and D plans that you actually go after them. And I was, so I think that's one of the areas that, that a lot of people don't understand that, that it is really, you have to be proactive in that. And there are some folks that still don't have the paid act information. Um, because they have not gotten the appropriate software to do so. And uh, I think the issue that we're we're seeing there is that uh, we're seeing these Medicare Advantage plans, especially some of them that we we know are 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 like MSP recoveries that are very aggressive when it comes to conditional payments. So this information is available. We're seeing, um, MSP recoveries look at the Section 111 data and, and using that uh, for different causes of action. So I would say the main thing with the Paid Act is um, glad where CMS allowed us to get the information on Part C and Part D plans, and the challenge is to um, identify those plans, keep track of changes in plans, and to make sure you're addressing all leads. Right, because it really was a two-part, right? It was that um, making sure you were getting the information. And I do know we have worked with some clients who simply aren't even really in that process yet of getting the information. But even for those of uh, them that do, it is you now have the information, kind of what are you doing with it? And even can you kind of get it through into your system and, and do that notification? Rasa, what are you seeing on your end with kind of what are people doing with that new information that they're getting? Do you think most of them are understanding it and being proactive? Or do you think most of them are still on, on the C&D just waiting for it to kind of come to them? So from the plaintiff perspective, you know, what we have seen is that, you know, we see settlement terms with 
sort of more burdensome language stating that people on the plaintiff side have to address these conditional payment claims from Medicare Advantage plans and so forth. I do think it's unfortunate that the plaintiff and plaintiff's attorney is not able to get that Medicare Advantage plan information and Part D plan information through the Paid Act. I mean, we're still pretty much at the mercy of does the beneficiary recall which plans they were enrolled in? We also do have the resource though of Medicare.gov where a beneficiary can set up their account and then they can see the sorts of different plans that they were covered in. But it would be great if somehow the plaintiff's bar would be able to access that information through the Paid Act as well. I agree, Bridget, because, I, or excuse me, Rasa, because I, I truly, you know, having parents who have um, Medicare access, people just don't. They don't necessarily understand the differentiator between having, quote, traditional Medicare and having those C&D plans versus a supplement plan versus what they had two years ago versus this year. It, it's just, I, I do think you're right. Having the ability for everybody to be working off of that same amount of information, I think would make everything from start to finish go, go significantly faster. Um, <clears throat> The other thing kind of corollary to this, uh, Bridget, and I know you um, also are um, uh, involved in Mark, is a conversation about this thing called the Ramp Act. Did you want to talk for a minute about kind of what the Ramp Act is and, and where we think we are with that right now? Sure. Um, so the Ramp Act is um, the, uh, an attempt to bring in legislation that would take out the private cause of action provision under the Medicare Secondary Payer Act. Um, and really, it's a it's a very um, smart uh, piece of legislation because that private cause of action really is something that we've seen more used as a sword um, rather than a um, a shield. And um, really, at this point, the information is out there. Uh, parties really know. Uh, in a sense, how to get the information regarding Part C, Part D. Um, and rather than waiting for the settlement to occur and then going after primary payers, the RAMP Act uh, takes away the incentive of having those double damages. And right now, um, the, it is a bi bipartisan supported act. And right now, uh, we're just waiting to see where it goes uh, through the House and Senate. So then really, as far as this first part of the year, the, I think the paid act, we can say by all accounts, seems to be very successful. There didn't seem to be any, you know, data issues or report, you know, going back and forth to CMS. I know some of the CND plans are working through kind of the addresses that were given and, and things showing up in locations maybe they, they didn't ask for. But I do think all of that is working pretty well. As you said, that ramp act is kind of sitting out there. We're towards the end of the year. It's probably... Um, most likely going to roll into next year's Congress, have to kind of, you know, reinvent the wheel in that piece of it. So that's kind of that end. And then um, not long into January, um, in fact, I, I think it was that second week of January, um, things that aren't unusual, we got a brand new reference guide from CMS. What was a little unusual is that there was only one change in that newer reference guide, and that was this addition of um, 4.3, the section um, 4.3, which was really the use of non-CMS approved products to address future medical care. And so um, this really actually took up a lot of oxygen, I think, this year 
in um, the MSP area. Um, Rasa, did you want to talk about kind of, you know, thoughts of when it first happened, kind of the um, the mood in the room, I guess, when it when it first happened? So I'd be happy to, Chen. So, you know, the language that was put in that January 10th, 2022 reference guide said, and I have it written right here, um, as a matter of policy and practice, CMS will deny payment for medical services related to the workers' comp injuries or illnesses requiring attestation of appropriate exhaustion equal to the total settlement, less procurement costs before CMS will resume primary payment obligation for settled injuries or illnesses. This will result in the claimant needing to demonstrate complete exhaustion of the net settlement amount rather than a CMS approved workers' comp MSA amount. So sort of the shocking thing was the statement that CMS will deny the payment because all the parties have to do is avoid a cost shift of post-settlement injury related care to Medicare. And there are different ways to do this. You know, you and submission is purely voluntary or so for this statement to come out where they're stating that CMS will deny payment unless you have this CMS uh, determination was just mind boggling. And so I have always been um, of the thought that many times these CMS determinations may be overfunded or they may not accurately project what the future injury-related treatment will be, and that there are many ways that you are avoiding a cost shift to Medicare without having a CMS-approved determination. So um, this very strong language was, was somewhat shocking. Yep, I think that's really what we all took as the shocking part, right, was the force of it with that language with the will. And so, Bridget, that, you know, um, firms like ours, other firms, MSPN, Mark. Um, this caused us all immediately to really go back to CMS and say, hey, um, let's talk about this, right? Right. And um, we did have those talks with CMS um, about this, this inconsistent real uh, kind of curveball that came out in January. And um, as a result of that, uh, they did held a webinar, um, which really only at the end of the webinar addressed the um, section 4.33, but then they came out with another version of the guide, which Rasek is going to talk about. Yeah. Right, and so um, this really was what came out in March, right, is you're re referencing the uh, newer, we've had a couple since then, um, but 3.6, which was an updated language of that 4.3 section. And, um, you know, we could kind of talk about, uh, Rasek, if you have that language there, they pulled off the will, right? That's kind of the most important thing that came in that revised language is they pulled off that very strong language and yeah. they changed it out with something that at least I feel is much more in line with the statute and the regulations and even their policy, right? Definitely. So what they actually did uh, in this March reference guide is they stated they changed that language that I had read a few minutes earlier. And now they say, as a matter of policy and practice, CMS may at its sole discretion, and that's very different than will deny payment. They may at its sole discretion deny payment for medical services related to the 
workers' compensation injuries or illness requiring attestation of appropriate exhaustion equal to the total settlement as defined in section 10.5.3 of this reference guide, less procurement costs and paid conditional payments before CMS will resume primary payment obligation for settled injuries or illnesses. And then they throw this in, which is kind of um, interesting, unless it is shown at the time of exhaustion of the MSA funds that both the initial funding of the MSA was sufficient and utilization of MSA funds was appropriate. This will result in the claimant needing to demonstrate complete exhaustion of the net settlement amount rather than a CMS approved workers' comp MSA amount. And so, Although CMS softened this language to say that they may have an issue with the amount that has been put aside, you know, they do throw in that sort of this burden of the injury victim having to show that at the time the MSA funds were exhausted, that the initial funding of the MSA was sufficient and the use of the funds was appropriate. I mean, the claimant injury victim always had to show that they properly exhausted the Medicare set-aside recommendations. But there was never necessarily this thought that, well, they should also keep everything that was used to come up with that MSA number. So if this were ever an issue that actually plays out, it would be interesting to see whether Medicare would look at that initial MSA and say, well, it didn't use our cookie cutter guideline. It doesn't have this and this. So we really, you know, we have some questions now because of this language. Right. Although. I truly, uh, I find, and you guys can kind of weigh in, what I found post this is not so many people know about that town hall that Bridget was talking about and this March guide that has this revised language. Um, I find a lot when I'm talking to um, parties to the settlement that they're really focused on that language that came in in January, right? They, um, they all kind of interpreted that either on their own or through various kind of blogs and postings or you know, meetings or webinars, that that first version of the guide was simply CMS saying, you can't do non-submits anymore. That will language was forceful and that's what they took that to mean. And so as far as kind of cause and effect, um, I think you know, the first one, the 3.5, really is driving a lot of the discussion even to this day about the non-submits, a lot of people don't seem to, to know kind of the further progression of that and, and, you know, kind of how that slots in with not only, as I said, what the actual statute and regulations say, but what CMS's policy is and how they've always looked at the non-submit piece. See, that's kind of the unfortunate thing about the whole MSP space is that you have people who will pick up on one thing yet they really don't understand the changes in the entire picture. So it's really important that people work with experts in the area who can counsel and guide them on all these, you know, yes, they did say it is here, but now it's a very different story because this is an ever-changing reference guidance field. And I'm sorry, Bridget, I think you were gonna say something before I- Oh, oh I was just gonna, I was gonna actually say almost the same, same words, Rasa, that it is unfortunate because it, that it's created a lot of confusion and misunderstanding. Um, and we're seeing that not only, you know, on the, the end of the, you know, the claim part of it, but we're seeing on the, the, 
the part of it that involves the, the judges and, and other entities that may not be familiar with that history. And so, um, and I, I agree with Jen, you know, we're really finding a lot of people focusing on that first January release and not the second one. And, and the law hasn't changed, right? Um, the regulations have not changed. So um, it did create a lot of confusion. I agree. So again, we're not weighing in on whether or not you should or shouldn't. We're just saying kind of what went through CMS's policy piece. As long as we're here with the, the reference guide, we might as well kind of catch up uh, through the rest of the year. 3.6 was this change to, the, um, to that language in 4.3. 3.7 was simply a change with um, updated life expectancies. And then we actually late um, in the year in November actually got a 3.8 um, which um, CMS actually previewed a little bit when we were at our annual convention for MSPN, and they actually then pulled it out into the newest version of the guide on, on 3.8, and that had to do with the re-review, right, Bridget? Right, right, and the re-review, uh, they gave us another chance to, um, to submit a re-review, and this one was based upon um, submission error. So this really, when you're thinking about this, and I think a lot of us thought this is if you have incorrect rated age information um, that you want to revise and resubmit. Previously, CMS said absolutely not, one bite at the apple. And then with this, with this uh, submission error, they gave they actually use that as an example to submit for a re-review. Um, couple caveats with that. The first is that, uh, it must, if you're submitting a re-review, the change must lead to a change in pricing in that MSA of at least $2,500. So it can't be uh, something nominal that you're asking the re-review for. And in addition to that, there's there's a little, there's some little nuances with it too. They say when you're resubmitting the documents, the amended documents must come from the quote originators uh, with appropriate information to identify that the error was corrected, along with the date of the correction and a wet, quote, wet signature. So um, that, that's a little bit interesting to see how that would play out, for example, with respect to medical records, is that the, the provider actually, if they, they co-mingled some different records or um, co-mingled information on one record uh, with another patient? Do they have to go in and, and actually cross that out? And what are the mechanics of that? So that's, I think, yet to be seen. So um, those really, um, unless you guys can think of anything else, were really kind of the affirmative things that happened at CMS. Um, Really, though, we still have a couple of things that didn't happen last year in our industry that maybe were just as impactful, if not more so, um, than one actually uh, we, we just talked about did happen. So, Rasa, the first thing um, that CMS did this fall was they actually pulled back um, kind of a proposed rule that we know had been sitting out there for um, a couple of years at that point, right? Right, definitely. So, in October of this year, um, they pulled the long-awaited proposed Medicare secondary pay rules that people in the liability space thought were really going to shed some light in terms of what you're supposed to be doing. And for those who may not recall what the language of this uh, proposed MSP rule was, it stated that 
um, the proposed rule would, quote, clarify existing Medicare secondary payer obligations associated with future medical items related to liability insurance, including self-insurance, no-fault insurance, and workers' compensation settlements, judgments, awards, or other payments. So really, the language as it's written, though, not only addressed liability, but it also talked about workers' comp, and it talked about you know uh, no-fault insurance. So there was a lot of speculation about, well, are they going to give us new workers' comp thresholds, or are they going to review no-fault MSAs? What are they actually doing? So my personal thoughts about this withdrawal is, and I'm somewhat conflicted, you know, now that I'm with Synergy, I am focusing on the plaintiff side, the injury victim side, the petitioner side. And there's, you know, sort of a notion that, well, if they're not reviewing liability MSAs the way they're reviewing workers' comp MSAs, or if they haven't put out any regulations, then really, what is it that we're supposed to do? So people are looking for some definitive guidance in terms of how to handle this. What I have always counseled, and I think that this is actually accurate, is that the obligation to do anything, whether it's workers' comp or liability, all comes from the Medicare Secondary Payer Act, which is what Bridget was talking about with the regulations. And none of that has really changed. I think that even though it would be nice to have some rules, I also think that having some rules could really mess up settlements because we have seen how too much involvement sometimes um, when it comes to review of proposals results in development letters and delays and people not being able to settle their cases. So, so I think kind of leaving it in a gray area might be more beneficial actually for the plaintiff's bar if you really think about it. So, so I did have these mixed feelings. I. I mean, it is a challenging thing for CMS to come up with a way to address liability cases, but you know, maybe they just realized this was too complicated and to just kind of leave it to the attorneys. Maybe they're also going to be looking at perhaps denying payments if they actually utilize that section 111 TPAC reporting and the diagnosis codes to kind of tackle it that way in terms of preventing the Medicare trust fund from going belly up too soon. So well, and that's, you know, we go back to 2012 when they had tried to do it. I, I agree with you. I, I We obviously have no insight to um, CMS's thought process, but you can only imagine how hard it can be to kind of develop these rules on the liability side. As you mentioned, uh, you know, kind of on the comp side, it gets bogged down and complicated sometimes there. It's a no-fault system. There, you know, if anything should be easier to process, it should be that. And, I, you know, that's kind of the first thing we always say when, when people ask us about liability cases is, it, here's your blessing and your curse. There are no rules. That, that's great. You can do what you want. There are no rules. You, you know, you don't have any structure. So I agree with you. Uh, I do think there's some, there's a lot of confusion on the liability side on, you know, we don't have to do anything because there isn't a structure like there is in comp, you know, and, and, and people can kind of look at the statute, see that it's in there and still say, well, they're not doing anything. So, you know, so I'm, I'm not worried about, you know, doing anything at all. So uh, I do think um, we are probably going to get there sooner or later. I just don't know that it's going to be sooner as, as opposed to um, kind of later on that piece. And then Bridget, um, along with that, the other thing that we didn't get this year that I think a lot of us thought we were going to get 
um, were actually the finalized uh, rules for the civil monetary penalties on that um, Section 111 mandatory insurer reporting. So what do you think is going on with that? Well, uh I can only speculate, but uh, there must be working on something. I, I don't. We don't get the sense from CMS that it it is going to be withdrawn, uh, like the liability slash future medical rule. Um, and there was an anticipation that it would happen sooner than than February. I think the misconception is is that once February rolls around, it doesn't mean that it automatically becomes a rule. Right, it it has to actually go through that process to actively be become a rule, and so it could be extended beyond February. We don't know, um, but all signs from CMS seem to point go. It's just a matter of of when, and we've seen them getting ready for it, right, with the different town halls and the the clarifications with the user guides and really trying to prepare people for some of the the last webinar they had talked about some of the the main issues that they see and how to correct them so that was very helpful as well so i i'm not wondering um we know that it's been kind of sitting over on the executive branch since goodness like march of this year right march maybe april at the latest and I'm, I'm not wondering if there haven't been some things that, that they have identified um, that potentially uh, were concerning to them that maybe stepped to the process. The one thing I'm thinking of, and I know um, people have made commentary on this, is there doesn't appear to be in those proposed rule a real big correlation um, or, you know, between what your errors are and what those potential penalties are. And I'm thinking... Um, things like if you um, kind of mess up your reporting on a $5,000 settlement, your TPAC of $5,000, and that, for whatever reason, an adjuster leaves, whatever it is that happens, that doesn't get reported properly, that's a $1,000 a day fine, that doesn't get reported for a year, you know, you're potentially talking bankruptcy for smaller reporting entities, Right. Right. Yes, it's significant. It it seems the the amount of penalty seems to greatly outweigh the amount of recovery that CMS would get. Right. And so I think like, you know, as far as us looking at these and 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 kind of being involved in the space, I think the one thing, especially just on the face of the rules that I look like, would be, you know, if they would put something in to to put some kind of cap on on whatever that would happen to be or or some kind of percentage cap or or something that that would not you know potentially just kind of blow the roof off of what those those penalties are. Right. Yeah, I do think you know it's important that the Medicare Secondary Payer Act be used wisely and in a you know sort of a practical manner. I think it's just unfortunate that you know, sometimes it becomes so complicated for people who are trying to address these issues in a reasonable fashion in a disputed settlement or a smaller settlement. So it seems as if, you know, the whole thing could be made a little bit simpler. I agree. And, you know, as far as the reporting and, you know, when you don't have that straightforward case, right, you don't have two body parts, you're settling everything, you're selling, and you can all kind of wrap it up in one. Life is messy. Work comp cases are messy. Liability cases are are messy. And so sometimes it, it, through no fault of anybody, right? You're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to get the reporting correct. It is a data intensive process 
where everything needs to go where it belongs and reported where it is. And so uh, I do, you know, it'll be interesting to see when we do get to the final rule, if we, you know, build in something for essentially that, right? Um, the, you know, the good faith, everybody tried to do this. It just didn't kind of work out that way. So, so ladies, that's what I had on my list. Can you think of anything else that, that came up in our space this year um, that we maybe missed talking about? Um, I know the one thing that we, we didn't really talk about, and I think we may have an upcoming podcast on this, is, a, is kind of that um, MSP recovery uh, space, what's going on over there. There's a lot of case law sitting out there. Um, we could probably spend a lot of time on that today. So, so we'll kind of maybe put a pin on that for, for next time. Um, the other thing I was uh, thinking maybe that we would mention is I believe paperless went into effect this year or was that maybe last year that um, the paperless notice for the conditional payments are? are... I think it was this year for some reason. Yep. Though this year has been a blur. It, ha it really <laughs> has. We thought we made it through the, the first couple of years of the pandemic and, and we would be uh, good to go in the third one, but that really hasn't um, seemed to be the case. Um, that's another one that I do believe we have a, a conditional payment uh, podcast coming up in the in the next series or the next few series, and so we'll have them address that. I think from being on the uh, committee, the uh, MSPN um, Section 111 and uh, conditional payment uh, committee, I believe they've stated that the people that have been using the paperless um, process are finding it to be very helpful. So we will have them address that on a future episode. So. Did you want to say something, Rosa? Uh, I was just going to say there are a lot of interesting things that are going to be happening in the MSP compliance space. And, you know, we'll see what our wrap up is like at the end of 2023. Yes. Yep. <laughs> right. <laughs> Anything can happen, right? That's so, <laughs> so thanks, Bridget. And thanks, uh, Rosa for uh, joining me today for the wrap up. Um, and we wanna thank everybody who has listened to us. Um, and thank you for setting aside some time for us today. Thank Thanks you, everyone. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Rosa. Thanks, Jen and Bridget.